Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Narconomics. We're going to be talking to Tom Wainwright from The Economist. This is Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Elite UK. You should know that by now, shouldn't you? Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where true values seldom stray. As ever, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be talking to Tom Wainwright from The Economist. He wrote a book called Narconomics when he was the Mexico editor uh, out in Mexico, funny enough, because that's a good place to be the Mexican editor. Tom was very interested in the drug cartel business. And as you'll hear in one of the first questions that we get into, he realized that the drug cartel business ran a very similar model to a conventional, normal, everyday business. Is that concerning? Is that worrying? Quite potentially, yes. So we're going to get into it with Tom Wainwright. This is a fascinating discussion. Uh, I say that every time, but it really is. And I know I say that every time, but it really is. So let's get straight into it. This is a kind of a two-parter. So the first one you'll be hearing is just with Tom Wainwright. But we also have a panel discussion afterwards, which we'll release at a later date. So this is Narconomics. Here we go. Tonight, we're privileged to be joined by Tom, Tom Wainwright, who has written this amazing book. So if you can give a round of applause to this book alone. It is generally fantastic. I, I read it over the last two weeks, and I finished it on the train, actually, which, uh, which I, I shouldn't admit to, because I did that with... Um, Whose book did I read on a train? It, it just felt like I was kind of not doing my homework and getting it in on late on time. But Tom's book is just genuinely fantastic. It's so well written, because in the drug policy world, it can be a bit heavy. It can be a bit uh, policy wonky. But Tom has managed to do all of that in something that's really digestible and entertaining. If you read this, you will be entertained, which is just... A strange thing to say when you know, some of the threads and things we're going to be covering later, like um, you know Mexico's drug deaths and, and things like that. But believe it or not, it's entertaining. On that note, let's introduce Tom Wainwright. As you know, Tom is from The Economist. Um, are you still the Britain editor at The Economist? Yes. Uh, and you were um, the Mexico sort of 
person, person uh, editor, victim. Yes. How would you get a role like that? Well, let's see. I mean, I, uh, The Economist is one of fairly few um, magazines or newspapers that still has quite a big staff of foreign correspondents. So I, the editor came to me in uh, 2010 and said, you know, how, you've been here a few years. How do you feel about being our next Mexico correspondent? And at the time, I was, you know, I thought this sounded like quite a nice kind of cushy, easy gig. Because if you look at the kind of things that past Economist correspondents in Mexico have specialised in, you know, they, they show a strange tendency to write a lot about the tourism industry, for example, and um, the tequila business is another thing that they often have specialised in. So I thought this was going to be a quite a fun few years, but I got there and um, it was 2010 and the drug war was just kicking off, really. Things were just going through the roof. Um, so it turned out to be quite a different kind of experience to what I'd really been expecting. Um, but a very interesting one, nonetheless. Did you have any preconceptions before that role? Did you know much about Mexico? Not really, no. Um, I, I mean, preconception-wise, I, as I say, I, I think I, I imagined it being a, a less uh, murder-focused job than it turned out to be, as it's fair to say. I mean, I... I, I went out there really expecting to write about regular business, you know, I mean, the kind of things that you might normally write about, aside from, you know, I was joking about the tourism and tequila, but, you know, you might write a lot about the car industry or remittances or trade or NAFTA and all these things that we're seeing going on. Um, but I got there and I, I found that I was, you know, I, I was writing about that stuff a lot of the time, but then a lot of the time also I was writing about this completely other, this completely different business, the drugs business. And I got into this kind of routine where I do, uh, you know, a, a regular business story one week and a drugs business story the next week. And the more I did this, the more I wrote about these two subjects back to back, the more I, it dawned on me that actually the drugs business was exactly that. It, it was a business. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, what would happen if we started writing about drugs through the eyes of a business journalist or an economics journalist? And that really was the, the genesis of the book, how, how it all began. Um, so all, all my sort of preconceptions about Mexico were turned on their head, really, by the way in which I ended up covering this subject, which was quite a different one to the one that I initially had in mind. And that's quite key to the book, isn't it? Because you do write it in that direction of if the current drugs business was a legitimate business, what is the parallel of that? Was it quite interesting to write from that perspective? Because there must have been a lot of overlaps and parallels that even you uncovered as you were writing it. Yeah, loads. I mean, I, I think it also, it just occurred to me that it was a, a kind of gap in the market because it, it, people, when they wrote about the drugs business, just lapsed into this kind of style and method of analysis that just seemed to me to really miss big bits of the story. You know, it's, the, the drug story is such a dramatic one, you know, such a gruesome one, that it's understandable that when journalists write about it, they cover the, you know, they focus on the, the kind of blood and guts and, and all of that. But the... It, it seemed to me that they were, in doing that, missing a lot of the really important stuff. Um, and I mean, just one example that I cite near the beginning of the book was when um, there was this thing that happened quite soon after I got there, uh, when the Mexican army discovered the, the biggest stash of drugs that they'd ever found in, in history in Mexico. It was just outside Tijuana, and they found it was just over 100 tonnes of marijuana that they found in a warehouse there. Um, and I was watching on TV as they, they lit this great big uh, stash of marijuana and, and there were armed police making sure that nobody stood downwind of the blaze just in case it was like it was the world's biggest joint basically smouldering away in, in Tijuana, 100 tonnes of the stuff. Um, and it was everybody breathlessly reported that 
this stash that was going up in smoke was worth half a billion dollars. And I looked into it, and the way they calculated this was based on retail prices in the States. They, they'd gone for a kind of conservative guess of maybe $5 a gram, multiplied that out over 100 tons, and come up with half a billion dollars. And it, it, you don't need to be a kind of business or economics expert to see that that doesn't make much sense. If you apply that to any other business, imagine trying to calculate the, the, the price of a big stash of um, uh, coffee beans in Mexico using the retail price of a cup of coffee in Starbucks in America. Or imagine trying to calculate the cost of a herd of cattle in Mexico using the price of a steak in a restaurant in New York. You're going to massively overestimate the value of the stock in Mexico. And that's what we do all the time in the drugs business. You constantly read that you know, police in Colombia or Mexico have intercepted a you know, billion dollars worth or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of product. And when you work out what it's actually worth in local wholesale terms, which is obviously what you should do, it's worth a fraction of that. So the price of marijuana in Mexico, it's not $5 a gram, it's about $0.08 cents per gram. So the real value of all that stuff going up in smoke in Tijuana was about 98% less than what we were told. And that kind of thing made me think, well, you know, what else are we going to learn if we dig just a little bit deeper? It's not complex stuff. Um, but that was what I started to do. The example you give in the book, and I think this is, this is inspired, I, I genuinely think, and I think you'll appreciate this, Neil, is because we're in the reform business, we get to hear a lot of uh, analogies, euphemisms, whatever, but you use the example of comparing um, the fundamentals, the, the raw materials to make drugs, whether it's coca in, in Latin America or poppies in Afghanistan which bleed into the heroin market, you use the example that that's more akin to thinking in terms of the art market and if you used to buy raw materials, paints, brushes, and how that translates into the big high-end production of a canvas that sells for millions and millions and millions. That's basically what we're addressing with the drugs market, isn't it? Can you explain more on that? Because I genuinely think this is just so clever to make that analogy. Well, yeah, I mean, this occurred to me when I went down to Bolivia where um, quite a lot of the coca leaf is grown that provides um, ultimately cocaine. It's one of the three countries in the world that uh, coca leaf comes from in, in serious quantities. Um, and it, there's a real puzzle for economists down there because in those three countries, Bolivia, Colombia and Peru, there has been a big increase in the amount of coca leaf that is destroyed. They've, they've genuinely made progress on that front. People talk about the war on drugs being a failure, and I, I broadly agree with that. But one area where they have made progress is destroying tons and tons, literally tons, of coca bush. Um, they destroy about half of the total amount that's grown each year these days. And what you'd expect, uh, using conventional economics, is that as the supply is, is hampered in that way, you'd expect the price to go up. But that hasn't happened. I mean, if you look at cocaine prices in the States, they've gone down over time. It's, it's very odd to try and understand why this is. And, it, yeah, that, that, that's, I think, the main reason why it is. The, the price of coca leaf is a tiny fraction of the final price of cocaine. So to make, imagine to make a, a kilo of cocaine, you need about a tonne of fresh coca leaf. You need to, you know, you, you dry it out and then you mix it together with chemicals, blah, 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 and, and end up with a kilo of cocaine. But the, the tonne of coca leaf you start off with um, in Colombia sells for about $500, give or take. So imagine if you're able to restrict the supply of that coca leaf so effectively that you double the price of that coca leaf. In real life, you're probably not going to get a result that good, but imagine if they're so successful that they double it. They're still only adding $500 to the finished price of the cocaine which a kilo of the stuff in the States costs maybe $100,000. So 
if you increase the price of the raw material by 100%, you're increasing the price of the fi finished product by you know, less than 1%. And it's, it struck me that it's the same as with the art market. You know, imagine if you double the cost of a box of paints from $50 to $100. It's not going to change the price of a, a Jackson Pollock or a Picasso or whatever. It might put it up by $50, but it's certainly not going to double it. And that's, I think that's what we're doing in, in the drugs business. We're focusing on the cost of the raw material at the earliest stage, which actually is not what makes drugs so expensive. They, they gain their value as they move along the supply chain. And what you do at that earliest stage in the supply chain isn't really going to have very much impact, even if you're very successful. So, so I'm going to take you back to the beginning of this book now. Um, you straight away start off like a drama because the routes that you had to travel within the writing of this book were pretty horrific at, in times, not just in the territory and the, what goes on within the markets. You know, as, we, as we know, there's all sorts of horrific fallout in Mexico because of the, the warring cartels, but purely on how you have to get to these regions because a lot of times if, if cannabis or poppies or coca is grown it's quite often at altitude in mountains along some crazy breakneck routes and things like that and you actually had to go through that didn't you to see it yeah i mean they, they for obvious reasons they keep these sites quite well hidden um and i i mean i was just talking about bolivia a minute ago where i went to see the the terraces where they grow the coca leaf um and there i mean the guy that i i got a guy to take me to the coca terraces there and he he showed up in this um toyota land cruiser and um greeted me with the phrase mi nombre es bin laden and he had this enormous beard kind of reaching down to you know down to his navel and um but he was you know he was a surprisingly friendly guy uh, in spite of his nickname and um took me on um this path to the uh um the coca fields which is known in um spanish as the camino de la muerte which he told me means the, the scenic route um, through the Andes. And um, so we got there, and I, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's the death road is, is how that translates. And you can see why, There's, I've, I've got a photo in the book actually of the, um, uh, the, the road that we went along and it has sheer drops down one side. We had to go through a waterfall at one point, um, clear away a landslide. It, you know, it was, it was um, pretty uh, difficult to get there. But um, I mean, the, the thing is though, it's, it's true. It's it, it, reporting the book and, and working out there was, um, uh, for me at least, a, the, often a scary experience. But the, I'm always keen to just emphasise that when you read about journalists being murdered in countries like Mexico, which happens sadly frequently, um, it's the local Mexican journalists who really face the real risks. I mean, it's all very well for someone like me flying into Ciudad Juarez and, and flying back, you know, just as the sun sets. But for people who live there and who report on that city and whose names and addresses are known to the people on whom they report, it's a different business altogether. So I, I always just want to make clear that the people who really deserve the, you know, more support from governments and, and from us are the local journalists who do that kind of work because um, they run the real risks. I was going to say, there's no getting away from it, that journalists do put their, their lives on the line in, in all realms. You know, what you did within this has certainly probably put a target on your back in certain circumstances. But as you said, the indigenous people that are covering this but are actively being targeted now, aren't they, by cartels, um, you know, why is this the case? Well, they, I, I mean, the, the, it sounds sort of flippant to say so, but the, the cartels are, are very, very concerned with their image in the media. And one of the things that I looked at in the course of writing the book was how they manage their reputations, how they deal with the press. Because, of course, for any normal company, that's a 
a big part of what they do. You know, they're obsessed with, you know, like, like ordinary companies, they're obsessed with marketing, with their management of, of the media, um, and even corporate social responsibility. It, it sounds bizarre, but it, it, drug cartels actually care a lot about their public image. Um, and if you've, I mean, I, some of you probably have seen um, that series on Netflix called Narcos about um, uh, Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel, and it, it comes across quite well in that, that he is very, very anxious at all times to preserve his standing in the community, and he funds all kinds of things, whether it's public housing or um, in, in some parts of Sinaloa in Mexico, there are primitive social security systems in place for people. Um, drug cartels have built sports stadiums. Um, there's a church in the state of, I think it's Zacatecas, which has a brass plaque on it saying, um, built thanks to generous donations from um, a guy called Heriberto Lascano, who at the time was the leader of the Zetas, a big cartel in Mexico. Um, and they give away quite large sums of money um, in order to preserve a kind of basic level of support among the population. They're not popular people in Mexico, but in remote parts of the country where the state has very little presence and does very little to support people, they make sure that they give away just enough of their money to deter people from reporting them, basically. Um, so their management of their image and their management of the press as well, which they do through a mixture of uh, intimidation and bribery and, and all kinds of other tactics, uh, is something that really matters to them, um, as it does to any other company. It's strange, isn't it? As you said, that there's a lot of uh, gang culture now has become peer culture. They're, they're there that's representing the community in terms that potentially their representatives aren't. And they are becoming almost not anti-heroes, but certainly figures that are being looked up to and aspire to. And, and certainly you cover it within the book that all the while you have areas that are potentially impoverished for whatever reason, money becomes currency and political power, doesn't it? And this is what's been handed over to cartels as we speak. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's true. And I don't want to exaggerate it because I think, you know, most Mexicans see clearly and rightly that organised crime is a, a absolute cancer on their society. But it's they do have this image that, as you say, that to some people they're almost anti-heroes in, in a way that, you know, terrorists or... Uh, the crimes that these people commit are, are among the worst you will see. I mean, the... One of the people I interviewed in this book um, was the leader of a gang in El Salvador who I subsequently learned had, had he was in prison when I interviewed him and he was in there for murdering um, a couple of young women using a, a floor polishing machine. I mean, the, the, the kind of violence that you see there would put the Islamic State to, to shame. It's, it's as bad as anything you will see. And yet they have a kind of following among some people. Um, I remember when I was in Mexico, there was a guy arrested... Um, who uh, his, his name was Edgar Valdez Villarreal, and he was known um, uh, in Mexico as La Barbie because he had um, blonde hair, so they, he looked like Barbie. They, they said, and he um, he he was arrested, and he was uh, went during his kind of perp walk. You know, the the pictures of him. Um, being paraded by the police, he was wearing this quite distinctive polo shirt. It was a Ralph Lauren polo shirt that said in it in big letters London um, and had the Ralph Lauren logo. And within days of this picture being in the papers, all the market stalls in Mexico City's illegal markets were selling knockoffs of this very T-shirt. And you would see in subsequent weeks lots of young men wearing the very same one. It became a kind of fashion. Um, so it's a, it's a weird relationship and it's actually not just in Mexico it, it, it surprises me that um, the drugs business in in 
this country as well has a kind of um, glamour that we don't afford to other criminals. I mean, it, it, you know, it makes me feel uncomfortable that someone like Howard Marks made a, a living out of writing books called things like Mr. Nice. Uh, I mean, he, he wasn't in the same category as some of the people in, in my book, but he did business with the cartels of Colombia, which, you know, it, you, you, you don't need to follow them closely to know how they were spending the money that he and others gave them. Um, and I, I think it's, it's odd that people in, in the drugs business seem to get an easier ride than uh, other serious criminals who, who carry out or enable violence in the same way. Do you think there is a, a chicken and egg scenario that culture is influenced by, you know, arguably the counterculture of certain drugs and cartels? As you mentioned, Narcos, Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad's feature quite heavily through your book because there's a lot of domestic production now of drugs, whether it's be you know, cannabis grown in people's bedrooms or meth being cooked up in people's kitchens. Is that influencing culture or is that just entertainment picking up on the fact we can't get away from this now, this is, this is out there, this is so widespread that we need to actually tap into this? Or is it just us being a bit voyeuristic? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's an interesting business because it, it's, it's one that connects the rich world with the developing world. I mean, the kind of massacres that you read about in Mexico... I think, have a, a sort of immediacy and interest to people in countries like Britain for the fact that the people doing this stuff are uh, exporting a product which we import in Britain in, in large quantities. And I think in that sense, it, it has a, a link between um, those countries and ours in a way... I mean, possibly, you know, terrorism of the sort carried out by IS might be in a similar category. It's, it's a rare case of something like that which has... Um, very immediate and well-reported consequences in, in you know both both parts of the world, um, but I think it's I mean it's clearly it's it's part of culture here. I mean surveys show that I mean what is it a third of people in Britain have, have bought illegal drugs. I think it's about the same in in the states. So um, it, it's it's part of the lives of, of very many people in in that way. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think I think people here are do feel connected to it by culture. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
So again, I'm going to take you right to the back, to the beginning of the book. Did you expect to travel as many miles as you did within it because you covered Mexico, but you also didn't just stay in Mexico, did you? There was a lot more other regions that you went to as well. So can you just give us a rough idea of, of the trajectory that you, you travelled around? Yeah, I, I mean, I, so I, I did expect to cover that territory because it was part of my job when I was there for The Economist. So, I, I mean, I had the um, a, a hardship posting which involved covering Mexico, Central America, which is everything from um, uh, Guatemala down to Panama uh, and bits of the Caribbean. So it was, you know, hard, hard, uh, hard work. Um, and I, um, so that was my main territory, really. But, I mean, that, that in itself was a dozen or more countries and... Um, I, I made trips down to South America now and again, as I mentioned, um, and occasionally to the States to, to see basically the other side of the border. Um, and, I mean, there are bits in the book as well from closer to home. I, I, I cover the uh, online illegal markets, you know, the, the dark web and so on, um, which involved doing some interesting research. At one point, I was browsing through different varieties of heroin using um, my laptop in Walthamstow Library, which was a you know interesting uh, experience. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, the, the legal highs industry is quite big um, in this country as well. You know, uh, I, I went to a shop on the Edgware Road where they were selling uh, packets of what they described as um, aromatherapy uh, ointment or something like that. Um, but, no, m most of the book is set really in Latin America and, and there was plenty of... Um, toing and froing. I've still got lots of air miles to use up in Central America. And that, that is where it is really interesting as well because you do cover the book in the sense of there is legitimate business to be tapped into and we're seeing that in places like New Zealand where the, as we call it here, novel psychoactive substances but, you know, legal highs most people would be aware of. And you spoke to someone in, in New Zealand that is was a pioneer of that in his own sort of way, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, so this is, he's a very interesting guy. He's called Matt Bowden. He's, he's better known as Starboy because as well as being um, a, a legal and legitimate uh, drug millionaire, he also has a sideline as a kind of progressive rock musician. And there's, um, I've got a nice photo of him in here, but he's, he's not how you would imagine a typical drug lord. You know, he's got kind of long flowing blonde hair, weighs a lot, wears a lot of eyeliner, and is um, you know he's a kind of flamboyant flamboyant character, um, but no, he made his money um, selling um, uh, BZP, so the, the, the kind of first some people say the first legal high, um, and the, it's interesting. New Zealand is is a kind of surprising centre of legal highs. You know, you might not think of New Zealand as being a a great kind of um, exporter of drugs, but I think what's what seems to have happened there is that it's not really somewhere where um, cartels really could be bothered to export conventional drugs because it's in the middle of nowhere not a massive population um but new zealanders like taking drugs you know to, to the same degree that other people do and so i think that was one of the reasons that they've got very big actually on synthetic drugs which can be made in some cases in new zealand or shipped in legally from china um with other drugs they, they grow quite a lot of their own cannabis as well um but it's it, they've become very big on legal highs and they've got this very interesting uh, experimental law which hasn't quite been put into practice for complicated reasons but their idea in New Zealand was to um, start regulating legal highs in a completely new way so the system that we have in Britain is a, a one in which the government is constantly trying to play catch-up with all the new legal highs if you look at the list of drugs that's banned by the Home Office I forget how many thousand it is, but it's, you know, it's a crazy list. It's not just the kind of dozen or so main drugs that people have heard of. It's a long, long list of chemicals that you'd never have heard of in most cases. 
And in Britain, like in most countries, you have this cat and mouse game where laboratories in the Far East will come up with a new legal high and the Home Office will scramble to try and ban it. And by the time they've banned it, probably a new one has emerged and it's legal just because it hasn't yet been banned. And in New Zealand, they decided to try and turn that on its head and, and do it exactly the, the other way around. They decided that they would regulate and um, authorise certain legal highs. Um, and only once the government had tested them and approved them would they let them onto the market. So it was a form of kind of legal regulation. Um, and it's been held up. It's never actually happened because, believe it or not, it didn't get voted through the New Zealand Parliament because people were concerned about the testing on animals. Um, there was a majority in favour of, of legalising drugs, but the question of animal testing was, was what held it up. And without animal testing, they can't possibly release them for, for human consumption, as with other drugs. Um, so as far as I know, it's still in limbo, but it's a, it's an interesting model. No other country's done that. And... Um, I wonder if it could be something for other countries to pick up on. And it is a key point, isn't it? And you've raised it a few times in the book of um, New Zealand is a good example of being an isolated country, um, but the demand is still there. So instead of having, as you said, cartels aren't necessarily bothered about shipping into New Zealand. So what you find, as with certain states in America that are very inland, a market grows through through its own homegrown nature, whether it's, again, you know, breaking bad, being cooked up in a kitchen or whatever it is. And this is the example that you give in New Zealand, isn't it? The demand is still there despite what the laws are in place. And it seems to be quite constant across every region, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think people, it seems to be that there's a, a demand for this stuff everywhere and we'll tend to find a way of getting hold of it. And I mean, there's something similar in a way has happened in Britain. It used to be that most of the cannabis in Britain was imported from countries like Morocco. Um, they made that much harder. The government cracked down quite successfully on, on um, imports. And the result hasn't been that people in Britain have stopped uh, smoking cannabis. It's that now we see more of it grown in Britain. Um, and, you know, often these things have unintended consequences because the stuff that's grown here in Britain tends to be quite a lot stronger than the stuff that was shipped in from Morocco. Um, so it's not, you know, not, not necessarily a, a massive success. Um, it seems very hard to actually get rid of it completely. And that's true as well, isn't it, for how drugs in general work of all the while there's incentivization through pricing. Um, risk can potentially go up so therefore things are being done hastily hence why in this country we've got the term skunk in quotation marks because it's just it's just bad weed basically isn't it it's just it's just stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily want to touch because it's done with such haste because of the risk factors involved and this is quite a constant what you raise as well is that all the while there's risk factors involved if if enforcement starts going after cartels or the distribution or the production it doesn't necessarily affect affect the supply chain all it does it tends to push the prices up doesn't it because of the risk factors that inherently come with that yeah i mean i think that's true that's the reason that drugs cost as much as they do is is because of the enforcement um and that's you know that's not necessarily a bad thing the the idea the, the, the kind of basic economic idea behind the war on drugs is to try and um you know, not eliminate drugs entirely, but to make them so expensive that people don't take them. Um, and, you know, they, they've made some progress with that. Drugs are expensive, but the evidence seems to be that it's very, very hard to get them any pricier than they are now. It feels like we've kind of reached a limit. And the, the example that I gave earlier with um, the cocaine market, I think, underlines that, that enforcement against cocaine has been effective enough to make it, you know, pretty pricey. But even in recent years, the the quite 
big successes that we've seen in South America um, eradicating supply haven't had any impact on driving up the price. So it feels like we've really pushed that about as far as we can in, in most cases. But we are getting to the point now where we? we're trying to use more in terms of eradication and uh, you know, kind of strong language like that that's putting in place is enforcement. But do you think these are working? Do you think that they're feigning? I think, I mean, I think the story of the war on drugs is that trying to stifle the business at the, the supply side has not been effective. I mean, we've been doing this for a good while now. And um, back in, I think it was 1998 or thereabouts, the UN had um, a big summit on drugs. And the, the title of this summit was A World Without Drugs, We Can Do It. And, you know, we're 20 years on from that now. And since then, in spite of all the billions of dollars spent and, and tens of thousands of lives lost, the consumption of all the main drugs actually has gone up quite substantially. So I think that, you know, the evidence, the evidence, the evidence base now is, is quite strong. Um, but in terms of what's going on now, I think there's an interesting kind of divergence going on because it, it, what we're seeing now is that in many Western countries, actually, we're seeing a bit of a rethink. I mean, in, in America, most obviously... Um, and next we're going to see this in Canada, we've seen it in Uruguay. Uh, Legalisation of, of cannabis is something that people are thinking about seriously, and, and that's, um, I think, something that you know is, is to be cautiously welcomed. Um, but at the same time, in other parts of the world, we're seeing things go in exactly the opposite direction. So if you look at countries like Indonesia, countries like Iran, China... You know the number of executions of people is going up, yeah, and of so the Philippines, yeah, Philippines, but probably the best example. Um, so it's, I think it's quite interesting. You know, we've had for many decades there's been a situation in which at the UN, all the countries of the world have been broadly agreed that the right approach is to try and stamp out drugs. We're now approaching a situation where the world really is splitting quite sharply into one set of countries you know, that want to legalise and, and decriminalise and otherwise sort of lighten up a bit, um, and another set which want to do exactly the opposite. And I think it, it means that the UN system that we've been using all this time is, is under real strain now, as, as never before. It's very hard to see how all these countries can all be signatories to the same anti-drugs conventions. They've got completely different approaches. I, I was looking through my notes because there's a really impacting uh, figure here that... One trillion has been spent on enforcement, and then since 98, consumption of cannabis and cocaine has increased by half, and opiates have trebled. That, yeah. I think, is a pretty big failure. Right, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not... If this were any other policy, I think it would have been shut down a long time ago. You know, it's... Imagine if, if we were talking about any other, you know, a, a policy to address famine or poverty or something like that, and, and spending had gone up, a lot of people had been killed, and the problem had got three times worse. You know, it's... I think the, the the evidence is quite strong that what we're doing isn't working, and I think it's it's encouraging now that there's a growing amount of evidence of how other approaches can work. And I mean, my book isn't a kind of you know massive pro legalization screed, but you know the the conclusion that I do reach at the end of it is that actually you know the the least bad way of dealing with this extremely complicated problem would probably be to legalize and, and to regulate drugs properly to get them under control, which we're not doing at the moment. And that's the thing I do want to say about the book is it's not a pro or anti-legalisation piece. It's literally you've just written and covered it from your perspective from an economic point of view, and that's just really useful. Um, but also you make the point as well that all the while um, potentially drugs are getting riskier to distribute, produce, whatever, 
it's not necessarily that that the cartels are focused on. They, they've not gone into it going, right, I want to be a drug dealer. I want to grow up and aspire to be that. They just seek profit. So you use the example that diversification is actually happening within cartels. Prime example, human trafficking and things like that. And this is what's going on as we speak, isn't it? Yeah, no, massively. I mean, they're, they're huge diversifiers. And it's interesting, we're seeing that at the moment now, actually, in, um, in Mexico, because the, the, the legalisation that's going on of, of cannabis in the States is presenting a huge problem to Mexico's cartels, because some of them depend quite heavily on cannabis for their profits. So the, the Sinaloa cartel um, at one point was thought to make about half its money out of cannabis. So the fact that there's now this... Um, very, very professional competitor in the form of the legal business in um, in the states is a big, big problem for them. In, in states like Colorado, the legal business now accounts for about 80% um, of the cannabis market. Uh, and we've got California coming on stream next year, which is obviously a, you know, a huge, huge market. And the, the kind of grey market from California, so the, the illegally diverted stuff grown in California will also supply a lot of other states that haven't yet legalised. So Mexican cartels at the moment are having to rethink their business model in, in a big way. Um, and they're doing two things. One um, is that they're increasingly switching. The, the, the farmers that used to grow cannabis, many of them are switching to opium. Um, because another thing that's happening in America, of course, is that Americans are getting into heroin in a big way. Um, the opioid crisis is, uh, uh, is, is a real problem. And so Mexican farmers are finding that um, there's not so much demand now for their cannabis, but there is increased demand for their poppies. So that's one thing that they're doing. Um, and the other thing that they're getting into is um, human uh, trafficking or people smuggling. Um, and ironically, I think the the wall and Donald Trump's other plans could end up providing them with another big business opportunity. Because if you look at the way that Mexicans used to travel to the States illegally, um, you go back a few decades and it wasn't all that difficult. I mean, interviews with Mexicans who were stopped at the border um, found that almost all of them had done it by themselves or, or just with, you know, with a friend they knew. Uh, you know, it wasn't something that you needed much professional help with. But over the past few decades, this survey shows that the proportion of people using professional help, i.e. people traffickers, um, has gone up and up. The harder it gets, the more... Um, illegal migrants need to enlist professional help. Um, and you can also look at the price of uh, people trafficking, and, and that's gone up as well. The average tariff paid by somebody who wants to cross the border illegally has risen in tandem with the amount that American taxpayers spend on the border patrol. And there's a nice chart in the book that, that maps that very closely. Um, so it's, you know, I, I can understand why Trump thinks that, you know, making security along the border tighter is going to make things hard for the cartels, but actually it's going to probably do the opposite. It's going to give them a big business opportunity because the number of people needing professional help to cross the border is going to go up. So they're going to have more business and they're going to be able to charge more for it. So they're probably pretty happy about this, actually. And they, they are quite parallel, aren't they? Because it's quite often the same routes that are being supplied, whether it's tunnels, whether it's the, the long logistical issue of bribery and who you know at the other end of, of, of different ports and things like that, that are getting both drugs and people through. So they do really go hand in hand, don't they, the two industries? So do you think there's going to be more crossovers? Do you think that people trafficking is, is going to be our next big thing that we're going to have to address? Well, it's, it's happening already. I mean, um, there's already evidence of... Um, tunnels that were previously only used for drug smuggling now being used for people smuggling and 
I mean, it shows how desperate the cartels are in some cases, because in, in the past, that's something that they haven't ever wanted to do, because those tunnels are very, very expensive resources. And the profitability of people smuggling is much lower than the profitability of drug smuggling. So they haven't in the past ever wanted to risk their tunnels um, uh, through people smuggling. It's, it's, quite, it's a risky business. You know, people can get discovered more easily. It's much, much more likely that a tunnel will be discovered if it's got half a dozen people in it than if it's got one person I, with a, a rucksack. you said in a book, didn't you, that drugs don't tend to cough. Yeah, it's true. And they, I mean, the, the, smuggling people is hard and they, it's quite interesting. You can look at the amount that it costs and they charge premiums for elderly people, um, pregnant people have to pay more because they're seen as being a bigger risk, um, slower to move. Um, you know, they, they approach it as any other business would. Um, and so these tunnels now are, are being used for people trafficking. So I think we'll see more of that. And it's, it's a worry because these cartels, as we know, are not, you know, um, not terribly nice people. So the, the fact that they're now getting involved in a business involving vulnerable migrants instead of just, just products uh, is not something to be welcomed. Is, is that a perverse measure of success for, uh, in quotation marks, legalisation and, and, and different movements like that that are using regulatory models? Do you think the fact that we are seeing such diversification within cartels, is that a suggestion that profitability isn't there for them in an illicit market when there is a regulated market to offer well there's uh, yeah i mean uh, you're right i think that there are all kinds of unintended consequences so i mean the the unintended consequences of making the border harder to cross are you know one of those consequences is a, a big bonanza for cartels that can now do people trafficking as well um but it's, I mean, it's, it's worth pointing out that, you know, legalisation has unintended consequences as well. Namely, the, the example I gave a minute ago about how Mexican farmers who used to grow cannabis are now growing uh, poppies, you know, which is, is not, not such a good thing. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a complex thing. Um, it's, a, it's a $300 billion a year international market, which has until recently been completely illegal everywhere in the world. Um, and has you know millions of consumers in in more or less every country. Um, it, we must expect that anything that we do, any any kind of radical change to it, is going to affect things in things you know in ways that we won't expect. Whether that's through cracking down or, or legalizing. And it's strange how it it does fit in with with legal markets as well, because you use the example of the corn industry in in Mexico. There's a huge, great corn industry because of you know, uh, is it the burrito that it's pretty much? Well, yeah, tortillas are made tortillas. of corn. Um, so you you find that there's correlation between how prices fluctuate in the corn industry and how growers are then more incentivized to grow that. Than and potentially more lucrative drugs. So, is there a way that we can use and also cotton in Afghanistan, which wasn't overly successful in, in in previous models? But is there a way that we can also think in terms of that that there are certain regions that are going to be reliant on the current drug trade? That if regulation is in place, they could have a stake in that in drug trade legally, but also how existing industries can can dovetail with that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's it's complicated. So as you say, in Mexico, there is this interesting trend whereby as the price of um, corn or maize falls, um, farmers are more likely to go into growing illegal crops, whether that's cannabis or um, or uh, opium poppies, and vice versa. As the price of corn rises again, they, they get out of the illegal drugs and go back into the legitimate ones. The, the farmers are kind of rational actors like everybody else. Um, it's difficult, though. I mean, as you say, in Afghanistan, it hasn't been a massive success. And in Bolivia, when I was down there, 
they've tried similar things. They, they've tried to get farmers into um, farming chickens or growing tomatoes instead of coca leaf. Um, and the trouble is, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's worth trying, but the trouble is that the the price of the leaf is so, so low, the coca leaf, so, so low compared with the price of the finished product, as I was saying earlier on, that the cartels can afford to put up their prices quite a lot without it really hitting their bottom line. So, you know, imagine if the farmer can get $500 for that ton of coca leaf. The UN comes along and says, look, we'll give you, you know, $600 for tomatoes of equivalent, you know, size or whatever. It's not that hard for the cartel to say, okay, we'll give you, you know, 650 or something. Um, so it's, I mean, it's better, I think, it's a slightly better approach than eradication because it means that at least the effect is that the, the price is bidded up a bit and it's something that doesn't completely destroy the farmer's livelihood. Um, but it's it's tough because the cartel's negotiating position is so so strong. Their final product is is worth uh, you know infinitely more than the price of the raw material. So they can increase their prices a lot. One last question for you then, uh, Tom. Where, what was your final conclusion after writing this book? Did you have any change of mind, or did you have a, a preconception that you pretty much stay parallel to it throughout it? Um, no, I, I, did I change my mind? I, I mean, I changed my mind on some things. Um, I, I mean, before I went to Mexico, I'd occasionally written about crime, including drugs, uh, in Britain. Um, so I was familiar with some of these arguments already. Um, things that made me kind of think twice. I mean, I... Speaking to... I think, to be honest, that uh, speaking to law enforcement people who were involved in the war on drugs... I, I kind of sympathise with them more. You know, I still think that they're wrong, but I I met one guy in Colorado who's fighting a kind of lonely battle against legalisation. Um, and, you know, he, he said that his job in the police is to, um, uh, you know, go, go and... He, he told me a story about, you know, picking up some poor child who'd been knocked over and killed by someone who'd been driving under the influence of drugs. And, you know, he said that his his bias is on the part of the victims and I you know I thought that was a powerful line but the I think that the thing that I'm really persuaded of actually is that it's very much in the interests of the victims as well as the users that these markets are, are got under control and not allowed to be continued to be handled by the mafia as, as we do at the moment so I I think you know by speaking to people on all sides of it I was I, I kind of felt more sympathetic to to everybody's arguments but the the weight of the evidence to me seemed to be quite strongly that what we're doing at the moment just isn't working and that what's going on in places like Colorado is is worth studying and at the moment looks probably more promising than uh, than what we're doing at the moment all right so if you could give a round of applause for Tom thank you so much Tom Wainwright for joining us on that and as I said at the intro there will be another part to that which will come later on in the year. So, a few thank yous while we're at it. My name is Ad. Thank you so much for all the artwork you've done. And please, if you're listening to this um, and you need any artwork, graphic design or anything like that, go and look him up. My name is Ad. Is absolutely brilliant. Um, Tristan and Nikki, the producers who have been helping us out so much on this podcast, we wouldn't be able to do it without them. Um, thank you to everybody that listens oh my goodness, we wouldn't be able to do it without you. With all your shares, downloads, um, guest suggestions, um, you name it, thank you so much for what you do with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, 
also just thank you to the guests as well they give up their time for this you know they, they don't make anything they're just doing it just because they want to have a conversation with us and goodness knows that helps um and thank you so much john our social media guru that does so much for us uh, all the elite uk team that are just heroes genuinely uh scooby pip for his omnipresent distraction pieces network uh, and of course all the people on the distraction pieces network including susie gage say why to drugs hardcore listening guys and jim smallman's choose night jaw and also thank you so much john john harris for doing our little social media clips and everything like that listen to the dream factory podcast it's amazing john does that right i think that's it uh, as you can hear, my voice is going because I've not escaped the coughs and colds of the season. So we'll be back uh, next month with another Stop and Search. Hopefully it'll be just as entertaining. And we'll see you then. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay Behind your barricades Where true Southern Street. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.